every once in a while, there, there is a, a day in the lectionary cycle when I read through these passages and I just think, man, there, there's just not a sermon there, <laughs> at least not one that I can think of. And um, sometimes, like today, there are about 10 sermons there. Um, I find myself especially relating to Isaiah and the tax collector in having more and more a sense of my own sin and failing. That would probably make a good sermon. I am not going to preach on those passages, however, or on fighting the good fight and finishing the faith, which great passage also from the Apostle Paul. We're instead going to look at Psalm 84 today, which is convenient because it is actually in your bulletin. You don't even need to turn to it in your Bibles. You just can hold your bulletin open pretty much to where... It already was, just one page or so. And uh, by the way, Keith, I, I need to apologize to you up front because it never dawned on me until this morning in the shower when I was singing it uh, to myself that it would have been great to sing better as one day in your courts today or better as one day on a horse, when I, you know, whatever, however you hear that song. You know, the story's told that when Stan Laurel, the tall, thin half of the early 20th century comedy duo Laurel and Hardy, when, when Stan Laurel was on his deathbed, he called to the nurse in his hospital ward over to his bedside and whispered to her, do you know what I wish I was doing right now? And she said, no, Mr. Laurel, what would you like to be doing? And he said, I'd like to be skiing. She said, I didn't know that you skied, Mr. Laurel. And he said, I don't. But I'd certainly rather be doing that than what I am doing. <laughs> Which makes sense if you're on your deathbed. Um, you know, we sometimes find ourselves where we don't want to be. We sometimes find ourselves very far from anything we would have chosen. Maybe we're not in the relationship our heart cries out for. Maybe we're in the relationship of our choosing, but it hasn't turned out the way we'd expected or hoped. Maybe our career has taken an unexpected and disappointing turn, or things have bottomed out for us professionally. Maybe we don't have the health that we used to take for granted in the future we face looks so much more limited and frustrating than the one we'd mapped out for ourselves. Maybe peace like a river simply does not attend our way anymore. And it seems like it never will again. Or maybe God has gone silent. That sense of his presence and love, that sense of his face shining on us, the joy that once seemed so real has evaporated and left us with, a sh with sharp and painful questions. That was true for me during Redeemer's fifth year. It turns out 
that under the best of circumstances, planting a church is a, is a task that's perfectly designed to expose every insecurity and insufficiency in its leader. Add a narcissist to the core leadership team, and it's a recipe for destruction and not a small amount of trauma. The low point of my time here as pastor at Redeemer and of my entire pastoral career, which up to that point had all been up and to the right, it happened just over seven years ago over Lauren's and my 35th anniversary weekend getaway in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'll spare you all the details, but this other leader had gathered a three-man team that was planning to take control and lead the church themselves, which I was told after having spent several hours on a conference call during which all of my failures and inadequacies were painfully and meticulously enumerated. Parenthetically, Redeemer wasn't yet Anglican and there was no bishop for counsel or for cover. It wasn't exactly what you'd call a happy anniversary. Not that it came out of nowhere. Something like 90% of church plants don't survive their first five years, and Redeemer's first five had been iffy. Nonetheless, that moment left me hurting deeply, bereft of hope, and it rocked my faith in God as nothing else had. This was nothing like I had imagined. In fact, at the time, I didn't even have a category for it. You may have already guessed this didn't happen. Thanks be to God. But it has taken years of counseling, the loving shepherding of a bishop, and a really great congregation to get over. So it's with some firsthand experience that I say, whatever it may be, we sometimes find ourselves where we don't want to be, far from anything we would have chosen. And today's psalmist in Psalm 84 is longing to be someplace else. He longs to be in Jerusalem and for whatever reason, isn't. His soul has a desire and longing for the courts of the Lord. His, his heart and his flesh are crying out for the living God. He cries out to the one, to one of those who can be part, so that he can be one of those who is part of the worshiping life of the temple. But he is, for reasons that we don't know, very far from where he wants to be. And he looks longingly for what he does not or cannot have. What does he do about it? And what can we learn from the psalmist about what we might do to respond to similar situations and circumstances? He doesn't, the first thing he does is this. He turns his pain into pilgrimage. He doesn't spend time on regret or recriminations or railing. We might have expected the passage in verse 3 about the sparrow finding a house and a swallow a nest in the temple to be followed by an expression of resentment that a bird can live in the temple, but he can't. 
it would be an understandable reaction. But that's not what the psalm, that's not the psalmist's reaction. For him, blessed are those that dwell in your house, ever singing your praise is not followed by woe is me who can't, but rather by blessed are those, blessed are those, I'm sorry, I just keep saying it in a liturgical way, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. Or as it says in an older translation, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. See, these two groups of people, they're separate groups of people. Those that get to enjoy the courts of the Lord and those who don't. But their hearts are set on pilgrimage. Okay, so I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I long to be. Do I just sit down and resent where I am? Or do I get moving and try to get closer to where I want to be? Do I take my current dis-ease to be a divine call to be on the move? Do I take my current dissatisfaction with where I am as a stimulus to make to take to the pilgrim way and journey in some way with God and toward a deeper knowledge and experience of him? Winston Churchill famously said, when you find yourself walking through hell, keep walking. This writer acknowledges that there is a road, there are highways that lead from where we are, if not exactly to where we want to be, at least to a deeper positioning within the presence of God, which will put all that we don't have into healing perspective. So the psalmist turns pain into pilgrimage and thereby gets it moving, puts it to work. Secondly, the psalmist remembers that he's not alone. Blessed are those whose hearts are the highways to Zion. It's a highway. It is, it is peopled with people. I don't know if any of you know the story of the man who was driving across the desert and his car broke down and he'd run out of water. And he was crawling across the desert, desperate to find an oasis or something, anything. As he's crawling along, he sees this caravan of Bedouins on camels and he, he crawls up to them and he says water water and the guy says i'm sorry we don't have any water but i can sell you this tie and he says I, I don't need a tie i need water i have the tie so he crawls on and he sees another caravan of bedouins and he he crawls up to them and says water water sorry no water but I can sell you this tie. It's a very nice tie. I don't need a tie. I need water. Finally, he crawls on and, and, and sees a building in the distance, fearing that it is some kind of mirage, but it's not. It is a beautiful bar, and there are people seated out on the patio under, under, under umbrellas having drinks, and he crawls on his bloodied knees up to the mater d' and says, water, water. And the mater d' says, sorry, buddy, you can't get in here without a tie. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how that story applies here, except maybe this. However arid and lonely the wilderness, there is not necessarily a bar, 
but there are, is always someone who has been that way before. The psalmist knows that he's not alone. And of course, we know of one person in particular, Jesus, who has trodden the way of wilderness before us. Pain is isolating. It can make you feel very alone. Everybody else seems okay. Every, everybody else seems to be enjoying life. Everybody else is experiencing the presence and love of God as they worship, and you alone seem to be left cold by the whole thing, or worse. But it's a highway that you're on, and many have walked or maybe crawled that way before. And many, if you don't know it, are traveling it now because no one lives a frictionless life. And I remember the liberation of making that discovery for myself. It was during this time of struggle that I told you about at the beginning of the sermon that I had gotten to the point that I wasn't even sure what I actually believed about this God who seemed so absent a help in time of trouble. And so I talked to a much wiser and not much but older pastor friend and confessed to him that I think I may be in the process of losing my faith. And he said, that's good. I've been exactly where you are now, and there are probably some parts of your faith that you need to lose, which there were, and I did. It was also around that time that my middle son, a science fiction aficionado and C.S. Lewis junkie, talked me into reading the Space Trilogy, which I'd never read before, and I highly recommend. It's, if, it, if you do, you'll understand why I use the term bent instead of broken. The world is bent. And in the opening chapter of the middle book, Paralandra, the narrator is summoned by Dr. Ransom to come and visit him. And so he takes a train journey down to the nearest village from which he has a four-mile walk down to Ransom's house. And as he walks, everything inside him, every fiber of his being, every neuron of his mind tries to get him to turn back. He describes it as being an emotional barrage that's deliberately trying to stop him from taking another step forward. And in the way Lewis describes that barrage, you realize he's talking about himself. He's been in the same place the narrator was. And he'd come out of it with a faith intact, changed maybe, chastened maybe, but it was still there. There is power in knowing, as the psalmist did, that you are not alone, that this path that you are trudging is well-worn. It's not a back alley or a dead end. It's a highway. This is, by the way, one of the primary reasons our small groups are reading and discussing the other half of church during this fall term, to get us all walking the same highway so that when we find ourselves where we don't want to be, we can still experience godly joy because we are not alone. We're walking with people who, even if they haven't walked our exact path, are genuinely glad to be with us in the pain. 
So the psalmist turns pain into pilgrimage, and he remembers that he is not alone. Thirdly, he remembers that pain is not permanent. Pain passes. Verse 7, as they go through the valley of Baca, the word Baca deriving from the word for balsam, a tree that grows only in very arid places. So this is sometimes rendered thirsty valley. The Valley of Baca, they just call it colloquially Thirsty Valley, which makes sense with the second part of the sentence, which would read then, as they go through the Thirsty Valley, they make it a place of springs. And the point here is that you do go through it. You do pass through the Thirsty Valley. The sense of dryness and abandonment does not last forever. Sooner or later, precariously in this life or unshakably in the next, it ends with the conscious presence of God. There's no other destination if we stick to this highway. Because the road that leads through the valley of Baca is the road to Zion. So he turns his pain into pilgrimage. He remembers he's not alone. He remembers that pain is not permanent. Fourthly, he reminds himself of the good that he still can do. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. One of the lies of our times of pain is, is, that, when, is that they tell us that we're useless to God and a burden to others while we're low and bowed down. But nothing could be further from the truth. It is in the dry seasons of our lives that we may become actual springs for others. We heard that in the story of Naomi and Ruth that we were reading during worship just three weeks ago. In her bereavement and bitterness, which she blames on God, she is very angry with him. There's still enough about Naomi for Ruth to say, wherever you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Even in her bitterness and anger towards God, Naomi drew Ruth to God. It was when Jesus felt utterly abandoned and cut off and isolated and helpless and forsaken in pain on the cross that he was more completely and richly transformative and more a spring for the whole creation. He was never more of these than he was in that moment of despair. And even in our dryness, we can become springs for the relief and refreshment of others. So he turns pain into pilgrimage. He remembers that he's not alone. He remembers that pain is not permanent. And he reminds himself that there is still good that he can do. Fifthly, the psalmist remembers that uh, he remembers other needs than his own. Verse 9, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. In other words, he's praying for the king. He takes an interest in the world outside of the interest of his own pain. He lifts his eyes from Baca to Zion. He refuses to let his pain restrict his horizon, clamp down and imprison him. When I was in my own valley of Baca, I found prayer almost impossible. But I forced myself to pray morning prayer every day. And it was a battle to do that. But as I did, but I did 
I did discipline myself to it just so that my pain was brought before God and therefore was prevented from becoming my God. Just to put pain in its correct perspective. And by the way, if you do not have a Book of Common Prayer, there are a bunch of them on the table in the back that you can take with you today if you want to, just one per family if you would. But it was in that service of family morning prayer that I was forced repeatedly into these scriptures. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from 1 Peter 1.3. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins from Colossians 1.12-14. And this, if you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Look up where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. From Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Prayer is one of the ways from Baca to Zion, one of those ways out of the situations we find ourselves in. It's one of the ways we lift our eyes from ourselves to God, and it's the presence of God the psalmist longs for. My heart and my flesh cry out. And though he doesn't experience God, though God still seems far off and dry and absent, nevertheless, he lifts up his eyes from the present pain to the pain bearer. So he turns his pain into pilgrimage. He remembers that he's not alone. He remembers that pain is not permanent. He reminds himself of the good he can still do, and he remembers other needs than his own. Finally, and it's at this point that I cannot help but think of the story of the young preacher who gave this mea culpa at the beginning of his sermon one Sunday. I'm sorry about last week's sermon. He said it had way too many points, so this week's sermon will be pointless. <laughs> I've preached a few of those myself. So sixthly, is that way too many points? Sixthly, suffering forges in the psalmist a deep sense of what really matters. Verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. He's remembered who he is and, and what matters to him in the crucible of his current turmoil. I'm not sure any of you have as perverse a sense of humor as I do, but do any of you remember the brilliant old Saturday Night Live shtick, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy? <laughs> Maybe these will help you remember, though I can't come close to delivering them in Phil Hartman's silky, handsome actor voice. If trees could scream, would we be so cavalier about cutting them down? We might if they screamed all the time for no good reason. <laughs> Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. 
That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them and you have their shoes. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> These just never get old. To me, boxing is like a ballet, except there's no music, no choreography, and the dancers hit each other. <laughs> And in light of the environment on many university campuses these days, this one seems prescient. Sometimes I think you have the right to march in and demand your rights, even if you don't know what your rights are or who the person is you're talking to. Then on the way out, slam the door. <laughs> but to me, these two are Hall of Famers, and two of they're absolutely my favorites. One thing, one thing kids like is to be tricked. For instance, I was going to take my little boy to Disneyland, but instead I drove him to an old burned out warehouse. Oh no, I said, Disneyland burned down. He cried and cried, but I think that deep down he thought it was a pretty good joke. I started to drive over to the real Disneyland, but it was getting pretty late. <laughs> and this, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a funny thing to tell him is God is crying. And if you ask why God is crying, another funny thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. <laughs> oh, gosh. Here's the point. Oh. Here's the point. I absolutely do not believe that God engineers unpleasant experiences for us to go through to trick or to punish or so that we'll learn some kind of ham-handed moral lesson. He simply is that, not that kind of perverted parental presence. But here's what I do believe. I believe that there is no suffering out of which he cannot bring some good. And one of the good things he brings out of suffering is a truer sense of what matters, what's valuable and what's worthless, what's important and what isn't. And it often takes adversity to bring us to that point, that, that maturity, to that quality of wisdom and sanctification. And what's become infinitely important to the psalmist is the companionship of God for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And in fact, what's more important than status even is service. I would rather be a doorkeeper, a minion in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What's important is integrity rather than comfort, wisdom rather than wealth, character rather than capital, having our lives laced through with the eternal rather than preoccupied with the ephemeral. Is there a cost to truly following Christ? Might it risk costing us advancement and preferment? Might it cut into our standing in career, might it sometimes make us miss out on the quote unquote good things in life? Might it mean that we end up as a doorkeeper rather than the property owner? Yeah, it might. Does that matter? In the end, no. Because it's the Lord who alone bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless? 
It's for him that our heart and our flesh cry out if we but listen to the whispers in the depths of our own being. And it's he alone who can satisfy us in those deep and arid places. It is, of course, to, com to commune with that pain bearer that we come to this and every service entirely at his invitation. Because nowhere is pain transformed and configured as it was on the cross. Nowhere is the absence of God turned more abundantly into a royal highway to the presence of God. And nowhere is the presence of God more hidden but more real than in the dereliction and abandonment by God that the Son experiences for us. Nowhere is it more triumphantly placarded that on the other side of pain is the glory of vindication and resurrection and ascension into the very presence of the God for which our hearts and our flesh cry out. Thanks be to God.